Hello everyone and welcome to this new session of Memcast. I have Dr. Sarah Vince with me today, one of our A&E consultants here in Northampton General Hospital, and we're going to speak about hypothermia. Hello, Dr. Vince. Hello, thank you very much for inviting me today. It's a real honor. Thank you for joining us. Would you mind starting with a classification of hypothermia? Yeah, no problem. So hypothermia is defined by a core temperature of less than 35 degrees C. But of course, it's medicine, so we've got to make it more complicated than that. So the classification that most of us will be familiar with is that of mild, moderate and severe. So the numbers that you'll read in an ALS handbook will be mild is 32 to 35 degrees centigrade, moderate is 28 to 32 degrees centigrade, and severe is less than 28 degrees centigrade when measured as a core temperature reading. I'm not too bothered about the actual numbers. It's the clinical presentation that's important. So if you think of mild hypothermia, that's the excitation phase. That's when a patient is trying to create body heat by using their skeletal muscle. So you'll see a patient shivering. That's a really good thing. You'll see them wanting to move around and you should encourage them to do that because that movement is generating heat. The moderate hypothermia is the adynamic phase. So that's when those preservative mechanisms, the shivering, that's all shutting down. They've got a reduced cardiac output, they've stopped shivering, and that's when they're starting to get into real trouble. And by the time you get to 28 degrees centigrade, the severe category, they're completely shut down, they're likely to be in a coma, and that's when they're really vulnerable to the severe arrhythmias. There's another classification that you might read about, that's the Swiss system, which goes from 1 to 5, and that's not based on numbers, that's based very much on the clinical condition. It starts with 1 being a normal mental status with shivering, and it goes all the way down to 5, which is basically they're dead. But the one that you'll read about when you're studying for ALS, that's the mild, moderate and severe categories. Which are the patients that would be more vulnerable to hypothermia? So there's no doubt that the most vulnerable to hypothermia are the extremes of age, so that's children and older adults. It's also the people with comorbidities. And as we talk through the causes, you'll start to understand why. So the way I split the causes up in my head is I think about whether they're losing too much heat. So that's mainly the environmental causes, whether they can't produce heat. So there's a problem with their metabolism or whether they've got a dysfunction of their thermoregulation. So that could be a central cause or a problem with their ability to vasoconstrict. So using those structures, let's just talk about a few of those. So the excess heat loss, for me as an emergency physician, the one that I'm always going to think about is exposure, so that environmental emergency. The people who are going to have the best prognosis are those who have cooled very quickly, but being able to breathe while they're cooling. So that might be somebody who's immersed in a cold lake. The clinical cases that I've looked after are people who were walking on a frozen lake, the ice has given way, they've fallen into the lake but they've had their head above water. So their body's cooled down very quickly. They've become hypothermic. Everything's shut down. They've lost their output. Those are the people that you're going to have the best prognosis with. Other examples of um, environmental exposure would be something more exotic or more exciting, like in an alpine environment. So the snowboarders, the skiers, you get into trouble. Those people can be crushed in avalanches, but that's often a trauma death or an asphyxia death rather than actually hypothermia. In the UK, the people we're going to see with environmental exposures often have a problem with a co-ingestion. So again, clinical cases I've looked after are those people who've got drunk, fallen over on a night out, and then they can be in not that cold a temperature, but if it's wet and they're exposed and they've got alcohol on board, their vasodilated and they cool down quite quickly. So that's the environmental exposure side of things. Let's talk about if they've got a problem with actually generating heat, a problem with their metabolism. So if they've got a problem actually producing heat or thermogenesis, that's going to be the endocrine category. So typically we're thinking about decompensated hypothyroidism or myxedema coma. 
You can also get a secondary hypothyroidism because of a problem with the pituitary gland. And also hyperdrenalism can also mean that you haven't got that metabolic drive to produce energy. The other one that I would see in the emergency department is malnutrition. I'm thinking specifically of patients with anorexia nervosa. So they literally don't have the fuel to stoke the energy for the metabolic rate to produce heat. Then the third and final category that I wanted to talk about was that of impaired thermoregulation. Now, I'm not going to teach a bunch of medics all about the pituitary access. I'm sure that you can come up with a really long list of problems with the pituitary gland that will cause problems with thermoregulation. The other ones that I would think of, apart from the central causes, are if you can't physically vasoconstrict your skin. So that might be a spinal cord injury. It might be a neuropathy, for example, caused by diabetes. It might be because of sepsis, where they're really vasodilated and losing heat. And then, of course, we've got all of the drugs. I've talked already about alcohol, but there's also drugs that we prescribe, like antidepressants, antimuscarinics and opiates. So all of those can mean you're vasodilated and therefore losing heat. The skin itself is a really important structure for thermoregulation. So if you've got a problem with the skin, you can also run into trouble with hypothermia. The ones I would see in the ED would be excessive burns. But you might also see it on a medical ward with somebody with a catastrophic skin emergency, really bad eczema or psoriasis where you can't thermoregulate and you would treat them in a similar way to a burns patient. We've been told that elderly patients are more at risk of developing hypothermia, especially patients that actually have cognitive impairment, uh, like dementia. Do you find it common in A&E? Yeah, and that can, that can be the environmental exposure, particularly if they've got cognitive impairment, so they may not know to dress appropriately for the weather outside. They may leave their house without appropriate clothing on. But there's also the sad situation of fuel poverty where people aren't heating their house because of concerns about the expense of the fuel. So they're in a very cold environment. And very commonly in ED, you'll see an older adult who's fallen in the night. They're on the floor for many hours and they're cooled down because the house isn't heated at night. So we try and encourage older adults to keep their temperature constant in their house rather than having it just on twice a day like perhaps you and I do with our central heater. Would you mind going deeper into the management side of things and how would we manage hypothermia? Yeah, no problem. I actually debated about whether you'd be interested in the cardiac arrest side of things that we do in ED. I hope you don't mind me spending some time talking about it because although that's very much what us as emergency physicians would be managing, the reality is that in a lot of hospitals, medical registrars will be part of the cardiac arrest team. So if I just spend a little bit of time talking about that side of things... So the first question that you have to think about when you've got somebody coming in in cardiac arrest with hypothermia is, should I be resuscitating this person at all? There's this mantra that you're not dead until you're warm and dead. But the problem is, is that when people die, they cool down. So if, for example, you found a homeless person who's very cold and is in cardiac arrest, are they cold because they've died and it's taken a long time for them to be found? Or have they become hypothermic because of the environmental exposure and possibly some toxin involvement as well? And that's why they've gone into cardiac arrest. Those can be really challenging decisions. The way that I try to think about it is to try and get a really decent collateral history, if at all possible, because you're not going to resuscitate somebody who very clearly had their cardiac arrest and then cooled down. That's very, very straightforward. If they've already got a temperature below 28 degrees and they had their cardiac arrest to start with, you're not going to get that person back. 
if the person is hypothermic but their temperature is above 32 degrees, 32 degrees isn't cold enough to stop your heart. So I think it's reasonable for you to be thinking of your other causes and you can cross off hypothermia as the cause for your cardiac arrest if they're 32 degrees at core temperature and above. So that's another reason that you can call the cardiac arrest without warming them all the way up to 35. If you're working in an alpine region, then you're not going to resuscitate somebody if their body is literally a cube of ice. So if they've got a frozen core and you can't perform chest compressions because they're completely frozen, that's also reasonable not to go into a resuscitation effort. And then you can look at the potassium. So there's been a case series looking at potassium and survivors of hypothermia. And the general consensus at the moment is if the potassium is above 12, you can stop resuscitation. From a hypothermia point of view, you're not going to get them back. There are three special scenarios which you need to think about, again, with the decision making. The first one is major trauma. Major trauma and hypothermia is deadly. You can't clot your blood if you're cold. So if they've got major trauma, signs of significant injury in their hypothermic, you won't get that person back. If they are submerged, that means their head has been underwater. That's going to be an asphyxic cardiac arrest. So that's not hypothermia that you're thinking about. Their brain has died because they haven't had enough oxygen. That's different in children, but you guys are going to be looking after adults. So if they've been submerged at the start of their hypothermia, then you're probably not going to get them back. The people who you're going to save are those who are immersed, so their body was in water, but they could still breathe. And then I touched earlier on looking after people who've been involved in avalanche incidents. And if they've been rescued and it's less than 35 minutes since the avalanche, if they haven't got a pulse, they've died for another reason. For example, major trauma or asphyxia. And that's because it takes more than 35 minutes for your core to cool down enough to stop your heart. So that would be another reason not to resuscitate. But I'm not an expert on that. Having only worked in emergency departments in the UK, I've never looked after an avalanche incident. Thing I want you to take away is it's not about downtime. So you're not making your decision not to resuscitate based on how long somebody's been down. For those people who have caught quickly, the chance of a neurological recovery is actually quite promising. So it doesn't matter if they've had a long downtime when it comes to hypothermia if they cooled quickly. So if you've made the decision that you are going to resuscitate, how is your resuscitation going to be different? And this is talked about in the ALS course. So The first thing you want to check for cardiac arrest is are they in cardiac arrest? So remember that your 10 seconds for a pulse check doesn't count. They may be so bradycardic it takes longer than 10 seconds. So you can actually extend your initial check out to 60 seconds. Just like all ALS scenarios, you want really good quality CPR. It's likely to be prolonged. So I would always try and use something like a Lucas machine because otherwise your team are going to get really tired. I would intubate. You may hear people talking about the risks of arrhythmias when you intubate, but actually the benefits of intubation, in my opinion, are outweighed by the risks. So we would encourage uh, proper airway management. And then if a shock is advised, so if they've got BT or VF, I would do a shock, but I would only do three if their core temperature is less than 30 degrees. Because after three shocks, it hasn't worked. It's not going to work until you've warmed up their myocardium. So I wouldn't do any more until I've got their temperature above 30. If they are below 30, I'm not going to use any drugs. And the reason I'm not going to use drugs is that the metabolism is so slowed, they're not going to metabolise and they're just going to pool in the body until you get it warm enough and then they'll be in toxic levels. So no drugs until you've hit 30 degrees C. And between 30 and 35 degrees C, because of that slowed metabolism, you're going to double the time intervals between your doses. So all drugs, your spaces will be twice as long as normal to try and prevent that toxic levels because of the slow metabolism. 
If you can, give those drugs as centrally as possible, so into a big vein in the antecubital fossa, because they're going to be peripherally shut down. A little vein on the back of the hands isn't going to cut it. Central lines can be really useful, but I would use a short central line. You don't want anything that could tickle the heart, because when you're hypothermic, you're really at risk of catastrophic arrhythmias. Then, of course, the next thing we're going to think about is how we actually rewarm this patient. We've thought about the drugs, we've thought about the shocks, but we do actually want to warm this patient up. So when you're rewarming these patients, um, if they've got a pulse, then you're going to be aiming for rewarming at the rate of one degree an hour. And the first choice if somebody's in a hypothermic cardiac arrest is without doubt getting them onto ECMO or getting them onto a bypass machine. You can't get any worse than cardiac arrest, so we have to warm this person up quickly. And ECMO and bypass will oxygenate, it will perfuse, and it will warm them up. And you can warm them up 8 to 12 degrees an hour on that, that sort of machine. So that would be the thing to go for. If you haven't got access to ECMO or bypass, then you're going to have to think about other ways that you can rewarm the body really quickly. So we're going to be using invasive techniques, so invasive active rewarming. So the simple things, we're going to use warm fluids. Those are typically warmed in a warmer to about 42 degrees C. You may need lots of fluids because as you warm them up, they're going to vasodilate, so you've got a bigger system to full. So it wouldn't be unusual to use two to five litres. If you've got the ability to, with them being intubated, I'd give them warm humidified oxygen because then we're going to be warming their lungs and all of that blood going through their lungs. So those gases would be warm to 40 to 46 degrees C. I'm not going to forget the non-invasive things you can do. So with your bags of fluid, rather than infusing them, you could pack them in under the armpits, into the groin areas and the sides of the neck. So as those blood vessels are near the surface, you could be rewarming them. Bear huggers are great, and there's a lot of research behind bear huggers, particularly from the theatre environment. But these forced airy warming blankets, they're not very practical during cardiac arrest. So you can cover the legs with them, but the reality is, is while you're performing chest compressions, they're not going to be that useful. If I had no access to ECMO or bypass, the other things I'm going to do are try and rewarm the heart directly by performing thoracic lavage. So I've only done this once. You would put a chest tube in anteriorly, second intercostal space. You'd put a second chest tube in the normal chest tube position, so laterally in the axilla. And you would put warm fluid through the front chest tube. It would warm the pleural cavity and then be drained out the bottom chest tube. So that's called thoracic lavage. That's literally going to put warm fluid around the heart and the lungs. The other Cavities that you can warm with lavage would be peritoneal lavage using a similar technique to that that the renal patients use when they're doing their peritoneal dialysis. Or less invasive, putting a catheter in and putting warm fluid into the bladder. But of course, the bladder is much further away from the heart and it's the heart that we want to warm up. So if somebody's got no pulse, you haven't got access to the right treatment, which would be ECMO. You've got nothing else to lose. I would be at that stage doing these more invasive techniques. But if they've got signs of life, those invasive techniques actually become very dangerous. I wouldn't be using that in somebody who's got a pulse. I've already said, if you're cold, you can't clot your blood. So what I don't want to do in somebody who's got severe hypothermia and a pulse is then do invasive procedures that they can bleed through because the clotting factors won't work, the platelets won't work, and you're just at risk of putting them to DIC. So I wouldn't be doing those invasive procedures if they've got a pulse. Instead, I'm going to be doing all of the Passive rewarming techniques, so covering them with blankets. The foil blankets are really good if you've got somebody out in the field with the ambulance crews. Covering their head. If they're mild, let them move around. Let them use that skeletal muscle to warm up. 
if they're moderate, then you can use your forced airy warming blankets or bear huggers. Use your warm IV fluids because they've got a line in anyway. And you can use the fluids, like I said, a bit like hot water bottle and pack the axilla and the groin. In the severe hypothermia, you've got to handle them really gently. If you just look at them wrong, they may go into a malignant arrhythmia. So all movements need to be really, really gentle. I think it goes without saying, if somebody comes in cold and wet, you need to get their wet clothes off and dry them off. But if somebody had severe hypothermia, I'd be cutting their clothes off so I didn't disturb them. I'd be doing all movements really gently, trying not to precipitate an arrhythmia. About monitoring and about post-recess care, and also about how do we monitor patients that come in, not in a cardiac arrest, but hypothermic, how would we go about and what sort of recommendations would you give us? Yeah. Sorry, I've gone into the big guns with cardiac arrest management. Actually, we should talk about some of the basics, you're right. Okay. So um, let's think about monitoring. So when I've talked about temperatures and making decisions about drugs and defibrillation, I'm basing that on a core temperature. So that would be measured with a low reading thermometer. And ideally, that would be an esophageal probe. That's what I would be used to using in our ED. But you can also use rectal probes or bladder probes. But the point is, is that you're not measuring temperature from the periphery. You're measuring temperature from the core. There are some tympanic thermometers that are okay. The thermistor ones are okay, but the infrared ones, they're not reliable when somebody's hypothermic. So be really careful that you're using the right tool for the job. And these sorts of patients are likely to be in the ED and they should have access to a low reading temperature probe. There are two other forms of monitoring I would think about managing slightly differently with hypothermia. That's blood gases and cardiac monitoring. So a word about blood gases. When you put your blood gas through a machine, it asks you what the temperature of the patient is. What the resus counsellor are saying is don't adjust the temperature. We know that gases dissolve differently um, at different temperatures. So if you put in the actual temperature of your patient, the machine's going to do some calibrations for that and you're going to get numbers out that you're not familiar with reading and as the patient warms up it's going to make it difficult to compare serial gases so because i'm an emergency physician i like to keep it simple i really like the simple recommendation from the recess council and that is don't temperature adjust any of your blood gases when you run them and that way through your resuscitation or while you're looking after this unwell patient you can compare your gases over time with numbers you're familiar to interpreting and that definitely makes life easier. The other thing I wanted to mention specifically was about the cardiac monitoring. And if somebody's got moderate or severe hypothermia, please have them on a cardiac monitor. I've mentioned multiple times these patients can go into these dangerous arrhythmias. Those ECG changes, they make a really good exam question, both for emergency physicians and, and medics. So the things that you'll be looking out for are sinus bradycardia being the most common, the widening of the QRS, the prolonged PR, the prolonged QT, so everything slows down. And then, of course, the J wave, so that's the little hump at the end of the QRS. That's the specific one for hypothermia. The colder the myocardium, the more likely you are to develop the arrhythmias, so they can be atrial or ventricular, um, and you can get all sorts. The worst, of course, being the which we've already talked about. When you're monitoring those patients, there are two phenomena that are quite well described. That's of afterdrop and rewarming syndrome. So what to expect um, either after resuscitation or while you're warming somebody up. So the first one is afterdrop, and that's where the temperature drops despite your rewarming efforts. That used to be thought to be quite a big deal, but actually it's not clinically that relevant. We don't really understand why it happens. We think it's because when you're hypothermic, you're shut down peripherally. So that blood is very cold. Your body is doing what it can to preserve the warm blood at the core. 
So as you warm somebody up, you start to vasodilate, and so that cold blood from the periphery mixes with the warm blood of the core, so you get an evening out of the temperature between these two areas. Clinically, it's not that relevant, so you can see it. Don't panic if their temperature drops and just keep rewarming. The rewarming shock, though, is a different phenomenon, and that can be really challenging. And that's as you warm somebody up, when they've come in in the adynamic phase, they actually become more and more unstable. There's two theories about this. The first one is that because they're peripherally shut down, they've got lots of lactic acid in their periphery. And as you warm them up, you get that vasodilation and all those toxins from the periphery mix in. The other theory, which fits with my clinical experience of looking after these patients, is actually they come in in the adynamic phase and then it's the illness that tipped them into their hypothermic state that starts to reveal itself. So the example might be that you're looking after somebody who was found on the streets, perhaps a homeless person who's hypothermic, and then as you warm them up, they become more tachycardic, more unstable, and actually it's the sepsis from their pneumonia that made them so unwell that they couldn't make it to the homeless shelter. That unmasks itself as you rewarm them. In the UK, for somebody to get really hypothermic without a clear environmental cause like falling in a lake, there's often an underlying medical cause that can reveal itself and cause all sorts of challenges as you warm them up. So because you mentioned sepsis, would you advise uh, giving IV antibiotics to hypothermic patients as a standard? I would have a low threshold and it all depends on that history. So if you've got the older adult who's fallen in their home and been on the floor all night, yes, I probably would, because why did they fall in the first place? Sepsis is common. Cold sepsis is common. I can do a lot of good with antibiotics. So if somebody's critically unwell, yes, I would. Would I give it to the person who fell through the ice in the lake? Probably not. So it's going to depend on your history. The reality in the UK is that most people who are hypothermic have got something else going on. So I would have a low threshold. So the most common sort of red call that we would get here in our emergency department would be the older adult who's come in hypothermic, perhaps found on the floor, and you've got this mixed picture that you've got to untangle. I would be giving them antibiotics, but the other thing I'm going to be doing on anybody who's got an altered mental state and hypothermia is I'm going to be sending off a thyroid function panel. And the moment you see in a question in an exam, hypothermia and confusion, you have to be thinking myxedema coma. The way I've always remembered it for my exams is everything slows and everything swells. So thinking about the central nervous system, they're going to be confused, they might be depressed, they might be apathetic. Everything slows. You check their reflexes and they get the prolonged reflexes. They've got the weakness. With their GI system, they can get ileus constipation. Everything swells, so you can get macroglossia, which would make managing an airway quite challenging. They can even get a hoarse voice because even the vocal cords have swollen and they get the pretibial myxedema. The cardiovascular system, everything slows, so they're bradycardic, they're hypotensive, and they can even be showing signs of heart failure. So it slows and it swells. When you're examining them, you're going to look full systems exam, but specifically you're looking at the neck to see if there's a goiter or a scar from previous surgery. The management is going to be give IV thyroxine, T4, so that's the inactive form. When I have looked after patients in a myxedema coma and I sought advice from a specialist, the endocrinologists have actually advised that I give some T3 as well. I don't think we should be doing that without expert advice. So the lyothyronine is the active form, the T3, and that can precipitate arrhythmias and MIs. You're going to be doing the other simple things, giving the fluids. I would always give somebody antibiotics if they came in confused and hypothyroid. And I'd also give them a shot of steroids, 100 milligrams, just like you would somebody with adrenal crisis. So the chances of having a concurrent hypoadrenalism is actually quite high. 
So any take-home messages that you would want our listeners to remember? Yeah, I think don't be bamboozled by the numbers. Hypothermia can be mild, moderate and severe based on their physiological state. Most commonly, it's because of excess heat loss, and that's because of your environment, plus those vasodilatory things such as alcohol. As medics, you're going to think about the metabolic system and the fancier endocrine issues with the myxedema coma, but always cover with antibiotics, thinking cold sepsis at the same time. Treatment is going to be with passive and active rewarming techniques using simple stuff like blankets, bear huggers and fluids, and Remember your adjustments when you sit your ALS course of just three shocks until you've got the temperature above 30. No drugs until you've got them at least 30. And double the spaces between the doses until you hit 35 degrees C. Thank you so much. That was an excellent talk. Thank you. You're welcome.